my son, my son Joshua, he's seven, he asked me the other day, like, are lots of people born in mangers? Are lots of people born in mangers? Because, right, Jesus was born in a manger. And, you know, dawned on me, like, here's an opportunity, right? Like, Christmas, Christmas, rightly so, is a cause for celebration. Right? We find, I mean, we find this the coming of Jesus. His first miracle is water into wine at a wedding feast because his coming represents that fulfillment of God's promise of the Messiah, joy, celebration. Right? And so Christmas is a cause for celebration, but the, the manger, I'm like, ah, the manger, the manger is not really a sign of cuteness in, in the original. Like, really what it's about is, like, Jesus' humble circumstances. He was poor. There was no room in a proper place. Like, if you've gone through childbirth, well, I haven't. I've been there. <laughs> I've been in the room. That doesn't count. Um, but I've been in the room three times. And, you know, if you're giving birth to a child, you um, you want it to be in a hospital with, like, uh, antiseptics used, um, preferably a NICU adjacent, um, so on and so forth. Um, the ability to perform a C-section if need be. You know, a manger is none of those things, right? It's not cute if you really think about what it means to give birth in a barn with animals. So with Joshua, I was like, this is not being a drop. Like, the life of Jesus is a cause for joy, unequivocally, the greatest cause for joy. And at the same time, in his life, there was so much suffering. The circumstances of his birth involve some measure of poverty, certainly, but his life and his path to the cross involves such great suffering. And so when you have this, it seems seemingly a paradox. God accomplished the defeat of suffering, the end of suffering, through the suffering of Christ. And so we're gonna we're doing we're in the middle of a series right now, uh, just for three weeks. This uh, Bill started it and then this week and then next week, uh, on looking forward to Christ's return. Right here, this is the Advent season, that's like a fancy Latinate word for Jesus, Jesus' arrival, his coming. All right, and we also look forward as Christians to his return. To his return. And so we're looking at different passages in Scripture that touch on that issue. And I'm going to read, this is from James chapter 5. So I'm going to talk about patience, patience and suffering as we wait for the coming of the Lord. So this is, I'm going to read James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. You can follow along with me. Hear God's word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. And as always, I want to say three things out of this passage. First, what does James mean by patience? What does he mean by patience? Second, how do we go about being patient? And third, uh, with what fuel are we patient? How, what, what enables us? to be patient, to remain patient as we wait for the return of our Lord, um, for those of us who are followers of Christ. And so first, what does James mean by patience? Actually, the context of this, if I read from verse 1, the, the, the first six verses of the chapter are, the, I'll just read, go back to verse 1 and read it. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Right? You can't overemphasize the extent to which Scripture is aimed at those who suffer, those who are poor, those who are downcast, those who are on the out, 
sign of society, right? You cannot overemphasize that. God does also love those who are wealthy and privileged and desire that they likewise would come to repentance and a saving knowledge of the truth. But the scripture generally, from beginning to end, presupposes that it's here, the people hearing it are not the ones who are rich, but rather the ones who are poor, not the ones in power, but the ones uh, on the receiving end of it. And so, in some ways, when James, in the, the most immediate meaning, when James says in verse 7, be patient, brothers, until our brothers and sisters, uh, until the coming of the Lord, the most obvious meaning is like, those people who have it good now are going to get what's coming to them when God judges the world. Right? That's what he's saying. Um, God will judge the world, and so you, you be patient. You be patient. And patience, I mean, the meaning of the word in English come, is originally someone who suffers. Right? When we talk about patience, we don't mean like life is really, really easy, so you need to be patient. Right? We, don't talk, we don't say, oh, it's, it requires a lot of patience um, to go home over break and spend all your time sleeping. Right? That, just comes, that, that comes naturally. Patience is a response to some difficulty, some suffering, some problem. Right? And so, James, it's this, it, there's this issue that we need to resolve. And this is salient for us as Christians in that here, if we're following after Christ, or if you're not, like this world involves suffering, it involves difficulty. How do we respond to that? I'm going to lay out three possible responses. First, we can respond to suffering through complaint. Complain, I'll call it the spectrum of complaint, because that's anything from like complaint all the way on to like worth harder and more difficult suffering, sort of bitterness, right? We think about that, there's a spectrum there. And so that's one response. I have lived in the culture of complaint myself, and still do from time to time. It's like, it's kind of fun complaining, yeah? It's kind of fun. My favorite, my least favorite version of complaint is like the vague booking, where, you know, it's like you post on Facebook like some cryptic message about how difficult things are. Sorry for those of you who did that today. I'm not speaking against you right now. But you know, it's like we, it's like, it's really, it can feel uh, like a certain kind of release, a culture of complaint. But we all know, uh, those of us who are given to complaint, which is, well, I don't know, I want to say all of us, but some of you are pretty uncomplaining. We'll get to you next. <laughs> um, part of the challenge of that is it doesn't satiate you being a complaint. It doesn't fix the problem. All right, it eats at you. And those around you, too, to be fair. But it eats at you. Bitterness, that much more so. Where there's real cause for suffering, real unhappiness. If you know bitterness, if you've tasted bitterness, you know how consuming that can be. But anyway, that's, a, I think, a very natural human response to the suffering that we encounter. A second possible response is uh, what I call stoicism. I'm not getting too technical about the stoic philosophers of old, but stoicism in the conventional sense. Um, <clears throat> Matthew Henry, there's this great, there's this guy, Matthew Henry, he was the late 17th, early 18th century preacher um, in England, Welsh preacher, I want to say, uh, in England, and he wrote this great commentary on the whole of the Bible. The bit on James was written after his death off his notes. Um, he, is, <clears throat> he says, patience, what James means by patience is not merely being resigned to reality, being resigned to necessity. There's a certain kind of stoicism. It runs strong at Princeton. I mean, in some ways, Princeton people are like, I struggled over this. Are we like incredibly good at patience or incredibly bad at patience? Right? Because we do know, I mean, we do know how to defer, how to work long and hard. So part of part of that meaning of patience is the one who suffers 
the etymology of the word in English, part of it is it's related to the word passion, the passion of the Christ. Right? When we think of passion, we think of things that are devoid of suffering. But in its origin, it meant what you're willing, the, the passion that's driving you to be willing to endure suffering. And you know, we have that at Princeton. There's some, I think actually there's a lot of stoicism. There's a lot of stoicism here. There's certainly a lot in parents. Um, a lot of Princeton parents have that stoicism in that you recognize necessity. I'm going to be a medical researcher one day. Like I, I admire this. Like so, I'm going to get an MD, PhD, and I'm going to calculate out. I'll still be in school when I'm like what age? How old are you when you got out of school with an MD, PhD? No. 32, yeah, as long as you don't take any time off, right? It's like there's this tremendous, tremendous willingness to, okay, things are hard, but I have a goal in mind. Or even just things are hard in life, but I'm going to endure it, and I'm going to endure it without complaining. And sometimes that's what we think patience is. Patience is just, okay, don't complain. Steal yourself against necessity and just go about doing it. Head to the grindstone, right? Well, I think James, it's a third. It's a third thing that he means when he talks about patience. This is also drawn from Matthew Henry's commentary. It's not just bowing to necessity. It's a humble reliance, acquiescence to the wisdom and will of God with an expectation, with a view to a glorious future recompense. All right, let me translate that into modern English. <laughs> I will rely on what God, on his will, not by gritting my teeth, by being grim in the way of the Stoic, nor spending all my time complaining, but I trust that things, the, the, the reward when Christ returns, this is where Christ's return is so central, will be so great that the suffering of this present time, as indeed was Christ suffering on the cross, the suffering, my suffering in this present time, the suffering of those I love, will be swallowed up by the joy of his return. And the patience is that trust, that trust in that future hope, that reliance, that resolution, that steadfastness. And I think that's what James is getting. Well, let's talk about that. So my second point, how do we go about doing that? You know, if that's our goal, not, you know, I don't want, we don't want to encourage like, just a bunch of Stoics. I mean, I'm glad at Princeton there is this kind of patience. In that sense, we are good at patience, like a view for long-term reward. But at the same time, we're very, we are very bad at it. The example that James uses here is of the farmer. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, is patient until it receives the early rains. You're waiting for that precious fruit. We're patient. But, you know, we live in such abundance, it's very hard for us to even know how steadfast are we. we have such instant gratification. I think thinking about the agricultural metaphor, when at Princeton in French history class, I read this great book. It was a memoir of a woman, Emily Carl, A Life of Her Own, it's called. And she had been born in the late 19th century in an alpine pass in the border of France and Italy. And so, and when she was, and then she lived into the 1970s. So she saw like this huge transformation of her community because she, when she was a child growing up, like in the winter, the snows would fall, the paths would be blocked, they'd have no interaction with the outside world. They'd do the harvest. This is like eat local in the original context. <laughs> they did the harvest, they had one central oven, they baked all the bread for the whole winter. And then they had that in a room, 
And then that's what the whole village ate until spring, right? And we get like more and more like mealworms and grubs in it as the winter progressed, the bread, right? And then they had that patient expectation. You're eating that dry, crusty, mealworm-infested bread, waiting for that harvest come spring, right, when you'll actually get some fresh food. This is patience, right? That's the kind of patience that, thankfully, none of us have had forced on us. But so how do we we go about being patient, looking toward that precious fruit that's promised when Christ returns? Well, James says a few things. So three things I'm going to draw out about how we go about being patient. First, there in verse 8, establish your hearts. First he says there, verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So this is an inward-focused one. It's like, where is my heart? What am I trusting in? What am I expecting on? What am I hoping for? Matthew, Matthew Henry, what he had to say was, you need to resolve that your resolution to follow heaven would be steadfast, right? That you would, you would persevere, that your good works would be constant. So I think often when we think about following our hearts, what does that evoke? Does that evoke patience or steadfastness? No, it involves impulse, responding to impulse. What James would have us do when we look to be followed by our hearts, that our hearts would be established in that kind of patience, perseverance. Second, there in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. I mean, when suffering comes on us, one of the first responses is to, like, attack the person next to you. Right? This is, I, Christina, I love this, when we talk to my wife, Christina, and I, when we talk to people who are thinking about getting married or engaged couples, it's like, uh, what we think of as our best one good piece of marriage advice is punchy happy, not punchy snippy. Does that make any sense? Let me explain that. You know punchiness, like you're tired? This is how you'll be at 3 a.m. tonight, right? It's like you've not slept, you're a little shaky, you're a little vulnerable emotionally. And when you're punchy, this happens with suffering or any kind of difficulty or stress. You can respond by attacking or by laughing, right? Attacking or laughing. Especially you do this with your spouse. You do this with your roommates on campus, it's like you come out and you see someone's left some mess. It's like your immediate response can be, if you, you, know, you have that thought in your mind, why have they done this? Right? And next thing you know, you just go at it. Right? That's punchy snippy. Right? You start fighting. Rather than punchy happy, well, how does this relate to not grumbling? It's like if we are going to be patient, so there's the establish our hearts, but it's also a communal activity where we need to be waiting patiently for the Lord together. And so we need to turn away from grumbling lest we ourselves be judged. Well, third, third, how do we go about patience? And I love this. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You know, when I was, Phil and Chris mentioned this passage, this is what sold me on it, to speak out of it. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. What is he saying there? He's like, we call those blessed who are able to be patient, steadfast, to persevere, to stand firm, to be faithful, to be consistent. Is that who we think of as blessed? I was thinking about, about blessing. Um, you know, I was, I was at Thanksgiving dinner. Some of you were there. We had a bunch of students over uh, for Thanksgiving at our house. And I was talking with a friend of mine who's on the administration um, at the university there. His family had brought the turkey. We were talking about, like, prodigies. I don't know why. Uh, he was just on Jeopardy, maybe. Anyway, we were talking about prodigies. You know, I know one of my closest friends in college was, like, a grad, came as a grad student in uh Physics, string theory, like the hardest version of physics, supposedly, um, at 19. 
right? He was 19 years old. This is who we call blacks, right? He's smart. He was smart. Then I was mentioning uh, someone else in the, who's in the room now who, like, came at a similar age to grad school. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, like, and he has social skills, too, that guy. <laughs> That's like, God blessed him with both hands. That's what I said. <laughs> God blessed him with both hands. I need to say. But is that what James thinks of? That's not what he's thinking. I think it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be smart. To be good at school. It's a blessing to, you know, have friends. blessing to be able to sing. All sorts of stuff. All sorts of other things are blessings. But here James is saying, like, who should you call blessed? You call blessed the one who is steadfast. Thomas, I think, we'd be like, the one who is steadfast, like, that's like the exact opposite of blessing. The blessing is not having, is the freedom from having to ever be steadfast, right? That's what we call blessing. Freedom from any kind of difficulty that would actually have to prove out, like, whether you can go the distance, right? Whether you're going to be, whether you're going to persevere. It's funny, though, because in hindsight, so, just to finish that analogy, you know, we should call someone blessed in their steadfastness, right? We'd be looking at that. We look, in hindsight, we look at it. In hindsight, I had this, it's like, what are the most important qualities in relationships, and it's not like, oh, that person's so funny. Oh, they're so smart. Oh, they did such cool things. No, it's like that person persevered with me through the long haul. When times were tough. You think, think about this in uh, wedding vows, right? In sickness or in health, you know? And the, the, sickness, the sickness is actually a non-negotiable. At some point, the sickness will come, right? And so I, it's like what we should call blessed is the person who, in the midst of the difficulty, is patiently relying on the Lord, right? Is in humility acquiescing to God's will and wisdom, waiting for that future recompense, in Matthew Henry's words. Waiting for that future reward. Who's not running away at the first sign of difficulty. Following, where following the heart doesn't mean walking off to pursue a new relationship or a new marriage or new kids with a different wife or whatever it is. Steadfast. Blessed is the one who is steadfast. That, I think, is important. When we think about our lives, how we establish our hearts. What we're looking at in other people and what we're praising, that's, that's telling us what we, what we hope in, what we aspire for, what we value. And so if we look at people and we say, I want these superficial things about them that will pass away, like their money or their looks, that's what we're telling our heart, follow that, pursue that, depend on that. But if we look and we say, this person is faithful in doing good works, in following the Lord, in committed to people, to serving God. If we look at that and we see this, this is true blessedness. They can withstand, yes, they can rejoice when there's time for rejoicing, but they can stand firm in a time of difficulty. Stand firm for me as well. Stand by me when I am in that pit and lift me out. Blessed is the one who is steadfast. Well, last, how do we go about doing this? What's the fuel that drives us to be patient? Right? Patience does not come naturally. For some of you, stoicism may come naturally, but true patience relying on God does not come naturally. Well, this verse 11, I mean, James just goes for the jugular here. This is like the all or nothing um, basis on which to be patient. He says this, verse 11, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, 
how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, Job, if you're acquainted with the book of Job, so Job had everything. Right? This is how it went. Job had everything. And Satan says to God, he only follows you because he has everything. Right? He only follows you because he has everything. And so God says, okay, I'll take it all away, and we'll see if he still follows me. And God takes it all away. His children, his money, his flocks, his friends come and curse him. His wife tells him to curse God and die. That's what happens with Job. Job's sitting there, and his friends are around, and they're saying, this must be your fault. You must have done something wrong. And this goes on about 40 chapters. Um, and uh, it's the most bad theology you find in Scripture, right? There's all this, like, false teaching they're saying to him. And he despairs, too, and blames God in certain ways, at certain points. But at the end of the day, then God comes to him. And at the end of the day, he trusts in God. He continues to follow God. His steadfastness, his faithfulness, is independent of the stuff. It's a really terrifying book, right? It's a really terrifying book. But this is what James says. Consider the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And you say, how does James have authority to lay such a tremendous claim on us? That like you can follow God. You can trust him. He is compassionate and merciful. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until his return. How can you say this? Well, let's just do a little bit of, of author biography here. It's really helpful. So this James, who wrote the letter to James, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Right? That's how he's referred to. There are other Jameses uh, in the disciples. James, the brother of John, who died earlier, been martyred earlier in the life of the church. And James, the son of Alphaeus, who's called in Wikipedia, James the Lasser. Um, <laughs> which means he's the least important of the three um, in the history of the church. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And what's notable about that? I mean, we have, he, he speaks with authority. This is what I'm trying to say, right? It's like he lived it out. We, we, we have from the Gospels that at a certain point in Jesus' ministry, his brothers and his family were a little skeptical of him going about with this huge movement behind him, right? But we also know from Scripture that his brothers came ultimately to follow him. And James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter, became the most prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem. He was Josephus, a Jewish author, tells us this James, the brother of Jesus, as Josephus calls him, was killed. He was killed um, probably 62 AD um, in a turnover of Roman authority. A, a high priest took the opportunity to throw James off the pinnacle of the temple, and then they beat him with rod. Well, there are a couple different versions of it, but the, the sense is... He was thrown off the temple and then beaten with a fuller's rod. And that's how he died. James was no stranger to suffering. At the same time, he was no stranger to joy. He had seen his brother die on the cross, and he'd seen him come back to life. It's like, what was the passion, that desire that drove Jesus' followers to to start the church, to scatter to the four ends of the earth, to lay down their lives, calling people to follow Jesus as Lord. They had seen suffering, yes, and they'd seen it defeated. And so that gave them the passion that in their own lives, as they lived it out, the persecution that they faced, or poverty, or whatever injustice, they had a hope that was great enough to triumph over all of that. They had a different perspective on the world and on its suffering. 
they were immune. At the end of the day, they were immune to that suffering. That's not a way of saying they were indifferent to it. You feel it in James, his passion, his rage against injustice. The ferocity of what he teaches against the sinful things that we do to each other. But at the same time, he was able to be patient. Because he knew the joy of Christ's coming. His brother, his half-brother, with whom he shared a home growing up. He knew that joy. This is so helpful to me. When I struggle with grumbling, or worse, with bitterness, right? when you face those difficulties, which don't grow fewer as you grow older, and to say, is the promise of God greater? Like, is that third way an option? Are my options just grumbling or anger or stoicism? Right? Do I need to go the way of the classic Princeton dad, become a stoical person who gets the job done? Or is there a third way where I, in humble reliance upon the Lord, maintain hope and joy? And where it triumphs over these difficulties. Where I see that these difficulties are temporary and are passing. So Christmas, it's Christmas time. Jesus came in this world to bring joy. And he brought joy just not to like nice, easy suburban lives like so many of ours. Or the wealth that's represented in the United States, and that much more so at Princeton. He came to bring joy in the midst of the hardest suffering. He suffered himself more than any of us in paying the price for our sins at the cross. And in rising from the dead, he gave his followers and ourselves reason to persevere, to be patient. To not grow tired. I tell you, it's a beautiful thing. What are the friends you value most? They're the ones who persevere you through times of difficulty. Right? What's the relate the quality you want in a future spouse? A person who will be with you in sickness and in health. Well, that is true of Jesus. He was with us. He bore our sickness. And he promises us great salvation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this word. We thank you for these words you wrote through James these many years ago. Heavenly Father, we thank you that built into our culture is the opportunity to remember your coming at Christmas, your birth. Heavenly Father, that it is uh, by cultural dictate the time where we should be most joyful. And indeed, Heavenly Father, it is a good reason for joy. It's a good reason for joy. Better than all others. Heavenly Father, nonetheless, we struggle. We struggle with Suffering in our own lives, we struggle with the suffering that we see uh, before us, Heavenly Father. We struggle with the steadfastness of Job and trying to live a life of of patience, of perseverance, of faithfulness. Heavenly Father, we see in the testimony of your saints that this promise is true, that this patience is possible. This patience ultimately leads to joy. Heavenly Father, may we be people not merely who are or whatever other blessings we have, intelligence or, or, or looks or humor or um, money or whatever it is, Heavenly Father, we may, may we be people who are known first and foremost as those who are faithful, faithful to God, our, 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 uh, to Jesus, our Savior, faithful to your church, faithful to the people around us, faithful to, even to those who um, persecute us, Heavenly Father, as, as, as you were 
likewise, in your time on earth. May we be steadfast. Teach us what it means to be those who stand firm. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.